This is the Poetry Foundation's Essential American Poets podcast. Essential American Poets is an online audio poetry collection. The poets included in the collection were selected in 2006 by Donald Hall when he was Poet Laureate. Recordings of the poets he selected are available online at poetryfoundation.org and poetryarchive.org. In this edition of the podcast, we'll hear poems by Ted Kuzer. Born in Iowa in 1939, Ted Kuzer began writing as a teenager and attended a graduate writing program at the University of Nebraska. For the next 35 years, Kuzer worked in the insurance business, becoming vice president of Lincoln Benefit Life. Most of his writing was done in the early mornings before work. He has said, I never saw myself as an insurance executive, but rather as a writer in need of a paying job. Although he doesn't consider himself a regional writer, Kuzer often locates his poetry in his home state of Nebraska or within the surroundings of the Great Plains. Rejecting obscurity, Kuzer favors a plain-spoken voice and clear-eyed observation. He looks to the details of daily life around him and is known for his dry humor and skill with metaphor. The biggest influence on his late work, he says now, is growing older. In the late 1990s, Kuzer developed cancer. During his recovery, he sent daily postcards of poems to Jim Harrison, friend and fellow writer. These poems became the collection Winter Morning Walks. Kuzer was appointed U.S. Poet Laureate in 2004. The following year, his book Delights and Shadows won a Pulitzer Prize. Kuzer lives with his wife on land outside of Garland, Nebraska, and teaches at the University of Nebraska. The following poems were recorded in Lincoln, Nebraska, in 2007. I worked for many years in a life insurance company, and we were, it was a 13-story building, and I went up and down the elevator every day uh, with a lot of people, and occasionally we would have a blind person on the elevator with us, and everyone I noticed would sort of back away and press themselves in the corner. And then on other occasions, I noticed how we all stepped back from blind people as if we were afraid of catching blindness, perhaps, or afraid of something that they might do. A blind woman. She had turned her face up into a rain of light and came on smiling. The light trickled down her forehead and into her eyes. It ran down into the neck of her sweatshirt and wet the white tops of her breasts. Her brown shoes splashed on into the light. The moment was like a circus wagon rolling before her through puddles of light, a cage on wheels, and she walked fast behind it, exuberant, curious, pushing her cane through the bars, poking and prodding, while the world cowered back in a corner. I have a building in which I write that is down by a small pond that we own, and I will go down there and sit early in the morning and look out across this little pond. And the following poem comes out of one of those mornings, um, very quiet observations of the pond. A letter in October. Dawn comes later and later now, and I, who only a month ago could sit with coffee every morning watching the light walk down the hill to the edge of the pond and place a doe there, shyly drinking, then see the light step out upon the water, sowing reflections to either side, a garden of trees that grew as if by magic. Now see no more than my face, mirrored by darkness, pale and odd, startled by time. 
While I slept, night in its thick winter jacket bridled the doe with a twist of wet leaves and led her away, then brought its black horse with harness that creaked like a cricket and turned the water garden under. I woke and at the waiting window found the curtains open to my open face. Beyond me, darkness, and I, who only wished to keep looking out, must now keep looking in. My grandmother Mosier, my mother's mother, lived all of her life in Clayton County, Iowa, and uh, when I was a little boy, I spent um, weeks there in the summer, and this is a a description of my grandmother's kitchen as I saw it uh, years after she had gone. A room in the past. It's a kitchen. Its curtains fill with a morning light so bright you can't see beyond its windows into the afternoon. A kitchen falling through time with its things in their places, the dishes jingling up in the cupboard, the bucket of drinking water rippled as if a truck had just gone past. But that truck was 30 years. No one's at home in this room. Its counter is wiped, and the dish rag hangs from its nail, a dry leaf. In house dresses of mist, blue aprons of rain, my grandmother moved through this life like a ghost. And when she had finished her years, she put them all back in their places and wiped out the sink, turning her back on the rest of us forever. A lot of what writing poetry is about is about paying attention, and um, this poem comes out of me being in the bathroom and noticing a spider in the bathtub in a little tangle of hair, and then sort of expanding upon that and uh, trying to draw some meaning from it. An Epiphany I have seen the brown recluse spider run with a net in her hand, or rather, what resembled a net, what resembled a hand. She ran down the gleaming white floor of the bathtub, trailing a frail swirl of hair, and in it the hull of a beetle lay woven. The hair was my wife's, long and dark, a few loose strands, a curl she might idly have turned on a finger. She might idly have twisted, speaking to me, and the legs of the beetle were broken. The following is a poem about my grandmother, Mosier, my mother's mother, uh, who had a set of pink depression glass dishes. And it's pretty well described in the poem, my feelings about these. The uh, glass dishes don't keep uh, hot fluids hot and so on. But it's also a poem about the, the kind of poverty that those people live through, that you assemble a set of dishes by getting a free one in every bag of flour you bought. Depression Glass It seemed those rose-pink dishes she kept for special company were always cold, brought down from the shelf in jingling stacks, the plates like the panes of ice she broke from the water bucket winter mornings, the flaring cups like tulips that opened too early and got bitten by frost. They chilled the coffee no matter how quickly you drank, while a heavy, everyday mug would have kept a splash hot for the better part of a conversation. It was hard to hold up your end of the gossip with your coffee cold, but it was a special occasion just the same, to sit at her kitchen table and sip the bitter percolation of the past week's rumors from cups it had taken a year to collect at the grocery, with one piece free for each five pounds of flour. I 
am a devotee of thrift shops and Goodwill stores and garage sales and yard sales and so on and have spent hours and hours in these places. I just love them. I can't exactly say why. But this is a, the following poem describes um, the basement of a Goodwill store uh, in the way I've seen them many times. In the basement of the Goodwill store, in musty light, in the thin brown air of damp carpet, doll heads and rust, beneath long rows of sharp footfalls like nails in a lid, an old man stands trying on glasses, lifting each pair from the box like a glittering fish and holding it up to the light of a dirty bulb. Near him, a heap of enameled pans as white as skulls looms in the catacomb shadows, and old toilets with dry red throats cough up bouquets of curtain rods. You've seen him somewhere before. He's wearing the green leisure suit you threw out with the garbage and the Christmas tie you hated and the ventilated wingtip shoes you found in your father's closet and wore as a joke and the glasses which finally fit him through which he looks to see you looking back, two mirrors which flash and glance. Are those through which one day you too will look down over the years when you have grown old and thin and no longer particular and the things you once thought you were rid of forever have taken you back in their arms. This poem, which is sort of grim toward the end, um, is an attempt to describe a kind of day very early in spring when we're hopeful that spring is coming and yet it darkens down and gets cold and damp at the end, which is very much the way the poem happens. Late February... The first warm day, and by mid-afternoon the snow is no more than a washing strewn over the yards, the bedding rolled in knots and leaking water, the white shirts lying under the evergreens. Through the heaviest drifts rise autumn's fallen bicycles, small carnivals of paint and chrome, the octopus and tilde-whirl beginning to turn in the sun. Now children, stiffened by winter and dressed somehow like old men, mutter and bend to the work of building dams. But such a spring is brief. By five o'clock, the chill of sundown, darkness, the blue TVs flashing like storms in the picture windows, the yards gone gray, the wet dogs barking at nothing. Far off across the cornfields, staked for streets and sewers, the body of a farmer, missing since fall, will show up in his garden tomorrow, as unexpected as a tulip. Almost 30 years ago, I was talking to the Nebraska poet William Clefcorn on the street one day, and he asked me if I had been invited to read poems at an event out at Grand Island, Nebraska, and I said, no, I hadn't heard about it at all, and, and I was generally sort of angered by this, thinking that I'd been left out of something. And I said, I'll tell you what, Bill, I'm going to go home tonight. I'm going to write a poem about Nebraska, and I want you to take it out and read it out there. And and I sort of intended to go home and write a snotty poem about Nebraska and how small it was and one thing or another like that. And I got home and started working on this thing, and knowing I had to get it done in the morning, I worked pretty late into the night. And as I wrote, I began to understand how much I really loved this place where I live. So this is Nebraska. The gravel road rides with a slow gallop over the fields, the telephone line streaming behind, its billow of dust full of the sparks of red-winged blackbirds, 
On either side, those dear old ladies, the loosening barns, their little windows dulled by cataracts of hay and cobwebs, hide broken tractors under their skirts. So this is Nebraska, a Sunday afternoon, July, driving along with your hand out, squeezing the air, a meadowlark waiting on every post. Behind a shelter belt of cedars, top deep in hollyhocks, pollen, and bees, a pickup kicks its fenders off and settles back to read the clouds. You feel like that. You feel like letting your tires go flat, like letting the mice build a nest in your muffler, like being no more than a truck in the weeds, clucking with chickens or sticky with honey, or holding a skinny old man in your lap while he watches the road, waiting for someone to wave to. You feel like waving. You feel like stopping the car and dancing around on the road. You wave instead and leave your hand out, gliding, lark-like, over the wheat, over the houses. The following poem is dedicated to a whole generation of women that would have been my grandmother's generation who um, did uh, hand painting on China. And uh, many of us in my generation have um, their hand painted China in our China cupboards that we get out on special occasions and so on. And I've always been fascinated with that generation and their handwork and so on. This poem is a little tribute to them. The China Painters. They have set aside their black tin boxes, scratched and dented, spattered with drops of pink and blue, and their dried-up, rolled-up tubes of alizarin crimson, chrome green, zinc white, and ultramarine. Their vials half full of gold powder, stubs of wax pencils, frayed brushes with tooth-bitten shafts and have gone in fashion and with grace into the clouds of loose, lush roses, narcissus, pansies, columbine, on teapots, chocolate pots, saucers and cups, the good Havilland dishes spread like a garden on the white lace Sunday cloth, as if their souls were bees and the world had been nothing but flowers. This poem describes something that many of us have seen along the side of roads, on abandoned amusement parks, um, uh, entertainment centers, and so on. Nebraska has some of these. Eastern Colorado is full of them. The Giant Slide Beside the highway, the giant slide, with its rusty undulations, lifts out of the weeds. It hasn't been used for a generation. The ticket booth tilts to that side where the nickels shifted over the years. A chain-link fence keeps out the children and drunks. Blue morning glories climb halfway up the stairs, bright clusters of laughter. Call it a passing fancy, this slide that nobody slides down now. Those screams have all gone east on a wind that will never stop blowing down from the Rockies and over the plains, where things catch on for a little while, bright leaves in a fence, and then are gone. This poem addresses something that I think about a great deal, which is that um, we are simply another kind of animal, and that we, we are blessed with a superior intelligence, but we, we can't divorce ourselves from all the other creatures. Walking on tiptoe. Long ago we quit lifting our heels like the others, horse, dog, and tiger, though we thrill to their speed as they flee. 
Even the mouse bearing the great weight of a nugget of dog food is enviably graceful. There is little spring to our walk. We are so burdened with responsibility. All of the disciplinary actions that have fallen to us, the punishments, the killings, and all with our feet bound stiff in the skins of the conquered. But sometimes, in the early hours, we can feel what it must have been like to be one of them, up on our toes, stealing past doors where others are sleeping, and suddenly able to see in the dark. That was Ted Kuzer, recorded in Lincoln, Nebraska in 2007, and used by permission of the author, Copper Canyon Press, and the University of Pittsburgh Press. You've been listening to the Essential American Poets podcast, produced by the Poetry Foundation in collaboration with PoetryArchive.org. To learn more about Ted Kuzer and other Essential American Poets, and to hear more poetry, go to PoetryFoundation.org.